Hello and welcome to episode 50 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Bach's Art of Fugue, BWV 1080. Looking at the late date often assigned to this collection of fugues and canons, it would be easy to think of it as the composer's last will and testament, so to speak. And why not? Strict counterpoint, particularly fugues, have been at the core of Bach's musical style from the beginning, and we've seen any number of them, certainly fugal sections within larger works and movements, if not always independent works. And of course, there is that very famous earlier collection of fugues, along with preludes, in the two volumes of the Well-Tempered Clavier. The first volume in particular, considered by many performers, the summit of fugal composition. And since fugal composition has been at the core of Bach's musical style since the beginning, why not make a final, supreme demonstration of his fugal powers his swan song, or something like it? Well, for one thing, it isn't at all clear that the whole project involving the art of fugue was in any way an eleventh-hour affair. The idea of an instrumental cycle devoted to monothematic, imitative counterpoint and fugal polyphony actually emerged quite early on, and involved not only Bach, but his son Wilhelm Friedemann and their mutual contrapuntal studies. Christoph Wolff refers to the extended genesis of the Art of the Fugue collection, dating from the later 1730s through the first completed version, about 1742, up to the expanded but incomplete final version of 1749-1750. So, does this collection represent both a summary and the ultimate demonstration of Bach's knowledge of fugal composition and contrapuntal processes in general? Certainly, but one which represents not only his final thoughts on the matter, but rather a lifetime of engagement. There are a number of works included in the collection, 13 fugues of various sorts and 4 canons, and so, as usual, we're only going to focus on a few as examples, and even in those, only certain aspects. And we'll start with Contrapunctus I in 4-2 time and D minor. Here first is the subject, which enters first in the alto voice. It's not a terribly complex one, beginning with a series of half-note leaps within the tonic chord of D minor in the first two bars, and then in the next two, an ascending scale line mixing half-notes and quarters, which returns back down to the tonic note with increased momentum provided by the addition of eighth notes in the final half-measure. Harmonically, it's very simple. The first two measures outline the tonic triad, so presumably would be harmonized with it. The third measure begins with a raised leading tone, suggesting the harmonization of a dominant chord, dominant seventh chord, or perhaps leading tone chord. The fourth bar seems to suggest a return to the tonic, with perhaps a quick reference to the dominant chord in the second half of the measure. These are the obvious harmonic choices. Sometimes Bach makes use of them, but sometimes, as we shall see, he doesn't. And they are seldom expressed as simply as my example shows, 
because this is, of course, a contrapuntal work with all four voices having an active melodic function as well as an harmonic function. Here's the subject, ending back on the tonic on the first beat of measure 5, with the conventional implied harmonization expressed in simple accompanying chords. The first fugal answer comes in in the soprano in measure 5. It's up a fifth as usual, but it's another of those tonal answers, which means that some notes are not echoed a fifth higher, but a fourth higher. This is done, as I've explained in earlier episodes, so that the melodic line will fit in with what Bach wants the harmonic implication to be at that particular point. Against the soprano's version of the subject as it enters, the alto voice continues with a contrapuntal line, which is actually quite interesting. Here's an example which shows the subject introduced by the alto, with the alto continuing on with a contrapuntal line against the soprano's version of the subject, which comes in in measure 5, up a fifth as a tonal answer. I've given the soprano voice a pseudo-violin sound here, so you'll be able to distinguish it easily from the continuing counterpoint in the alto. The alto's continuing contrapuntal line against the soprano's entrance is a strong and rather distinctive one. It marches up the scale for five quarter notes before dropping an octave to a more complex rhythmic pattern featuring additional leaps and an across-the-bar suspension. The perhaps surprising thing is that that contrapuntal line never comes back in the same form. In other words, it does not become the countersubject. There really is no countersubject in this fugue in the sense that that term is normally used. That is, a contrapuntal line that usually, or at least often, accompanies the subject when it returns. Having said that, I also have to say that there are elements from the contrapuntal line you just heard, most notably figures from the second and third measure, that do return, although they're not always easy to recognize when they do. Okay, let's hear an actual performance of the first exposition. After the alto voice introduces the subject, and after it's imitated by the soprano voice, and then by the bass, which enters on the original pitch level, and then by the tenor, which completes the imitation by coming in with tonal imitation at the fifth again, all of it coming to a close on D minor. Thank you. 
I mentioned that we closed on D minor after the imitation for the opening exposition is completed, but you may have noticed that that close is not marked by an emphatic cadence, because Bach wants to emphasize the continuity of the flow at this point, and when the D minor tonic chord arrives, it's actually somewhat disguised by a dissonant suspension in the soprano voice. That doesn't mean that the six-measure episode that follows does not have some distinctive qualities about it. The ascending bass line, which repeats the same rhythmic pattern of a quarter followed by two-eighths again and again, is quite distinctive. And the two parts above it, the alto voice drops out for this episode, engage in interlocking suspension patterns with the bass that are really very effective. Here is the first episode. At the end of my excerpt, you heard the alto come in with the subject again, on the original pitch level of D, thereby beginning the second exposition. But the fact is that you may have had a little trouble hearing it because the three voices that surround it are continuing to spin out the same motives they initiated in the episode. And those motives, using shorter note values, including repeated eighth notes echoing through the texture, may well distract the ear from the alto's entrance with the subject. Nevertheless, the second exposition has some interesting features of its own. After the alto voice is finished, and before the soprano comes in with its imitation, there is a little two-measure tag, in which Bach introduces a new version of a motive he had used in the first episode, and then repeats it again up a step. He does this at least in part to smooth the way for his upcoming modulation to A minor. Here is the second exposition, the alto beginning it as I mentioned, the soprano imitating it with a real answer starting on A. The bass almost answers the subject, starting just a beat after the soprano's entrance, but the entrance is aborted after only three notes. Since this false entrance occurred while the soprano's answer was still in process, it's often referred to as a false stretto. The bass actually does come in with a real entrance just four measures later. Here is the entire second exposition going a little into the next episode. The episode, which you heard just a little bit of, for which the tenor voice drops out, is temporarily in G minor, and uses more ascending interlocking motives to boost the sense of momentum. More expositions follow, the tenor leading the way on the next one, and more episodes as well. 
including a particularly interesting final episode, which makes use of a dominant pedal and more interlocking motives. But we are going to move on to Contrapunctus II. It employs the same subject, of course, but with a slight modification that turns out to be a very important one. Here's an example of the opening measures. You'll hear the subject in the bass voice, with the final four notes transformed from eighth notes to a dotted eighth sixteenth note pattern. In measure five, the tenor line comes in with the imitation, a tonal answer up a fifth. You'll hear it as a pseudo-viola. And against it, the bass continues the dotted eighth sixteenth note pattern in a contrapuntal flow for several measures. The continuation in the bass line, the extended pattern of dotted eighth and sixteenth notes, is again not a countersubject in the strictest sense, since that exact pattern does not return every time the subject does. But the motives introduced by the bass do return again and again with some modification, traded back and forth in every voice, sometimes in two measure segments, sometimes in shorter four or five note segments, sometimes varied sequentially sometimes heard in inverted form. Here are the first 16 bars in an actual performance, covering the introduction of the subject in the bass, its answer in the tenor, its answer in the alto four bars later, on the original pitch level but reharmonized this time, and finally the tonal answer in the soprano four bars after that. You heard how prevalent the dotted eighth sixteenth note motives were in the accompanying counterpoint. They sometimes work together in parallel sixths for a few notes, for example between the bass line and the alto line, but then the two lines will diverge, heading in different directions for a while. In fact, the mostly stepwise dotted rhythm lines are rarely abandoned. The bass line cuts off its pattern only two beats before the second answer in the alto line replacing it with one quarter note leaping up a fourth to another, a sort of pre-echo for the leap of the fifth, which the alto voice introduces half a measure later. There are a few other occasions when the persistent dotted rhythm lines break their pattern, but it's rare. The same is true when we get to the first six-measure episode.
you may have noticed the emphatic cadence in A major at the end of that first episode, one made all the more obvious by reduced activity in all parts except the soprano. As the new tonic of A major arrives, the next exposition begins, or at least seems to, but it begins in an unusual way, in the alto voice with an altered first measure. Replacing the normal starting note of D is another dotted eighth-sixteenth note pattern, which ascends from A and ends an octave higher. This is unusual, but the reason for this modification in the subject is obvious. It has to fit within the harmonic confines of an A major chord. Bach is not really going to remain in the key of A major for long. It becomes clear very quickly that he's really headed back to D minor, and that A major is just going to be heard as the dominant in that key. In fact, just four bars later, a tonally modified version of the subject enters again, this time in the soprano, on a D minor chord, although not really in D minor. In fact, four measures later, it's clear enough that we're in A minor. Then, two measures after that, after two false entrances of the subject, we get a true statement of the subject, back in the original key of D minor in the bass voice finally bringing some clarity to a purposely ambiguous passage. Here is that passage, beginning with the altered version of the subject, seemingly in A major, through the normal presentation of the subject in the bass back in D minor. By the way, you'll notice that along the way, those dotted rhythm motives, including some new versions of those motives, continue to play a very important role as they are tossed from one voice to another in various adaptations. We're going to move on now to the third contrapunctus. It presents the subject in the tenor voice in inversion, actually what amounts to a tonal inversion, in that the opening ascending fifth in the original version of the subject is replaced by a descending fourth, the descending major third in the original version replaced by an ascending minor third. The descending minor third that follows is replaced by an ascending major third etc. Also of note here is a rather chromatic countersubject. Here is a simplified example beginning in the fifth measure where the alto comes in up a fifth with a tonal answer against which the tenor continues to provide the countersubject. Here's a performance of the first exposition. As I indicated earlier, the inverted subject is presented in the tenor, then answered four bars later in the alto, four bars after that in the soprano, and then after a two-measure extension of the last measure in the bass. 
We're still in D minor as we approach the first real episode. It's a distinctive one characterized by two things continued references to the chromatic motives of the countersubject, along with syncopated across the bar ties with which they are often linked, and a new distinctive baseline motive, which repeats four times on different pitch levels in the first four measures of the episode and returns again later to play a similar role. After ten measures of this episode, we expect that the next exposition, the subject and its imitation, will begin soon, but what happens is a little surprising. The tenor voice does in fact finally enter, and we're in the key of A minor at this point, but it is with a disguised version or a variant version of the subject, one in which the leaps between notes are tied together by passing tones and provided with across-the-bar ties not part of the original subject. Here's a simplified example of this variant version. Here's the entire episode, and it requires something of a warning label. It's not easy to hear the entrance of the tenor with its variant, since there's a lot going on below it and above it. It enters three measures after the trill in the bass line in this recording. After the variant is presented, the final measure is again developed and extended, both in its original form and in its inverted form. This continues until a more conventional exposition begins some measures later in the soprano, and that will be easy enough to hear. Another different variant of the subject also appears in the final exposition. And in fact, the idea of presenting the original subject, but with the leaps and skips connected by passing tones, is a harbinger of things to come in some of the later fugues. But we're going to move on now to Contrapunctus V. The subject begins in the alto line with an inverted form of the variant we heard in Contrapunctus III. Then the inversion of that variant comes in in measure 3, overlapping slightly with the first presentation in the bass line. After three more bars, the soprano voice comes in, duplicating the bass line two octaves higher. Three measures later, the tenor comes in with a tonal answer, and then after another extension of the final measure of the subject, the soprano finally jumps in again 
with the original version of the variant. Three bars later, and now in A minor, the tenor returns again with an inversion. Three measures later, it's the bass's turn again, and after that, the alto takes its second turn. So there's a lot of imitation of the subject here in various forms, and relatively little episodic relief. The final measure of the subject is again extended and passed around between alto, tenor, and bass for three measures. And then we hear a very obvious example of stretto, the bass entering with the inverted subject in F major, and just a half a measure later, the soprano, much easier to hear as usual, enters with the original form of the subject. As you might have noticed, that little bit of stretto introduces an effective episode, only a few measures in length, before the tenor enters again with the subject. You heard that right near the end of my excerpt. But featuring a relatively simplified texture and a chain of suspensions in the upper voices. There are other examples of stretto in this fugue, but we're going to move on now to Contrapunctus six labeled in French style, in part because of the dotted rhythms and other rhythmic mannerisms associated with the French overture style. Speaking of stretti, this fugue features them in abundance, with the subject sometimes taking on its original form, or close to it, sometimes its inverted form, and that often in diminution, the note values halved from their original note values. I'm just going to play the opening measures here. A familiar variant of the subject begins in the bass voice, and already in measure two, it is imitated in inversion and diminution in the soprano voice, which also features multiple dotted eighth sixteenth note figures. That version of the subject is then imitated a measure and a half later in the alto voice. Four bars after that, the tenor voice enters, matching the soprano's entrance a fifth lower, and very briefly appearing to be in F major. Just one measure later, the alto re-enters, 
not in diminution, but employing the original form heard in the opening statement of the subject, although this time up a fifth. Finally, two and a half measures later, the soprano enters again, as we are briefly steered into F major, and then a little later toward A minor, as we head toward a brief episode. It's a crowded field to be sure, with so many overlapping statements on so many different pitch levels and with so many versions of the subject. I'm going to play just a little of Contrapunctus 7, which demonstrates both augmentation and diminution at the same time. We begin in the tenor voice with a filled-in variant of the original subject, that is, with passing tones filling in some of the leaps, just as we've heard before, but in diminution. In measure 2, the soprano enters up a fifth, again with a filled-in variant of the subject, but using the original note values that is, moving only half as fast as the version of the subject that the tenor began with. In measure 3, the alto voice enters on the original pitch level, in diminution, but also in inversion. Meanwhile, the tenor voice that began it all has moved on to a very active contrapuntal line against the entrance of the alto voice, characterized primarily by 16th note scale fragments which are tied to longer note values held across the beat or across the bar. A similarly active line is soon taken up by the alto voice when it's finished with its answer, and then later by the soprano when it has finished its answer. All three rather similar lines are played off against each other skillfully, with the result being an almost constant flow of sixteenth notes against the various answers. In measure 5, the bass voice finally gets into the game, presenting its answer on D, but in inversion and in augmentation. Instead of, in the soprano's version, a half note going to a dotted quarter note, going to an eighth note for the first three notes, the bass line substitutes a whole note going to a dotted half note going to a quarter note, and continues on in that manner. Bass lines are often somewhat easier to identify in a contrapuntal flow than inner voices are, but in this case, the bass line is moving so much more slowly than the voices against it, it may be a little difficult. The augmentation technique eventually moves to the other voices, but we're only going to hear the opening statement.
Contrapunctus VIII is a three-voice triple fugue. The point is often made in connection with this work that its three subjects are related to the original fugal theme. They are to a point. The first is related to the original version by its several leaps, but its chromatic movement, introduced already by the second measure, actually relates it more closely to some of the earlier counter-subjects. Here is the first subject and its initial imitation. The second subject is a very distinctive one with its repeated notes and recurring half-step pattern, but it has very little to do with the original fugue subject. Here is this second subject in the middle or alto voice with the first subject against it in the soprano voice. The new subject is then imitated in the soprano, while the first subject migrates down to the lower or tenor part. The third subject for this fugue does in fact relate fairly closely to the original fugue subject. Here's a little bit of it in the middle voice initially, but soon imitated in the lower voice, in company with the second subject. All three subjects don't appear together until we get to the last quarter of the fugue, 
and when they do, they don't necessarily retain their original form. Sometimes lines are inverted or presented in shorter note values or modified in other ways. Here's an excerpt starting at measure 148, the first subject in the top voice, the second in the middle voice, and the third in the bottom voice. Just four measures later, the parts are switched, the first going to the middle, the second to the bottom, and the first to the top. Needless to say, they don't stay there. Box 2 Mirror Fugues, Contrapunctus Numbers 12 and 13, are marvels of creative musical construction, in which a first fugue, called the rectus, is inverted and used to create a second fugue, called the inversus. This is considerably more complicated than simply inverting a single line and supporting it contrapuntally. Here, everything is inverted from beginning to end. Not just all the individual lines, which are often moved to different voices, but also the resulting modulations, and yet the result is smooth and seemingly effortless. We'll look first at the rectus of number 12 in four parts. The meter has been changed to 3-4 for the first time here, but the theme, presented first in the bass voice, still clearly retains its original identity. The tonal imitation enters at the fifth, four bars later in the tenor. The bass continues against it with an active contrapuntal line consisting of, after its first two measures, a mostly descending trajectory made up of eighth notes, initially employing an inversion of the last three notes of the subject, while also making some use of eighth notes paired with two sixteenths and even a trilled dotted quarter. As I've done sometimes before, I'm going to emphasize this continuing contrapuntal line, not quite a counter-subject because it never repeats in exactly the same way. 
I'll start in measure 5 with the imitation by the tenor voice, which I'll supply again with a pseudo-viola sound for contrast, heard against the continuing counterpoint in the bass. Now we'll jump to measure 10, where the subject is answered an octave higher in the alto line. You'll hear the alto line with the answer, I'm giving it an English horn sound, against the continuing contrapuntal lines of the tenor and bass parts. The continuing tenor line begins by introducing a new idea, an undulating swirl of sixteenth notes, the first we've heard. But after that, it makes use of eighth note patterns similar to, if not exactly like, the patterns we heard a minute ago in the bass line. Meanwhile, the bass line, as it continues, explores some new territory. It returns once to its trill motive, but also features some sustained notes tied across the bar and some sixteenth notes in new patterns. Now, this isn't much of a sample size, but it does show a tendency we've seen elsewhere in these fugues. Repeating countersubjects are fairly rare, but the continuing contrapuntal lines heard against the various versions of the subject do frequently draw on motives from the original counterpoint placed against the first fugal answer, and of course, from each other. Here then is the first exposition, with all four voices taking part and extending a little into the first episode. All of this seems consistent with what we've heard before in these fugues and doesn't really touch on the most remarkable aspect of the two mirror fugues, because so far we've only said a few words about how the opening measures of the first fugue, the rectus, is put together. When we look at the second fugue, the inversus, the complexity increases by leaps and bounds, because, as I stated at the outset, the mirroring of the entire fugue, not just the individual lines, is another matter altogether. And yet, here, it seems almost effortless. 
In the inversus fugue, the subject, originally presented in the bass, is now presented, in inversion naturally, in the soprano voice. The first answer, which originally came in the tenor, now comes in the alto, in inversion. The second answer came in the alto originally in measure 10, but now comes in the tenor, in inversion. The last answer given originally to the soprano now comes in the bass. Not only are all these voices inverted, but they are obviously no longer in the bottom-to-top order they once were. And inverting intervals, simply reversing their positions, does not automatically achieve a workable result in terms of harmony or dissonance treatment. And yet, here, everything still works out smoothly, something that is much harder to achieve than it may appear. Here's the first exposition of the inversus fugue. One could suggest that the ingredients are all the same here, or virtually the same, but the result is a very different fugue, even though we keep hearing details that are very much the same as in the first fugue. It's a rare accomplishment, with relatively few others who have even attempted anything similar. The examples I've played don't really come close to exhausting the art of fugue. And there is, of course, the final incomplete fugue in four voices. There's a wide range of opinions as to why it remained unfinished. It doesn't appear as if Bach's illness is one of them. And some brave souls have, in fact, completed the work, adding the missing voice and carrying on in Bach style as they understand it. That work, even as it exists in its incomplete form, is by no means without interest. It contains one of the clearest and most obvious uses of Bach's musical signature, the letters B-A-C-H, translated in musical terms to B-flat A, C, B-natural. This motive can be found elsewhere in some of Bach's compositions, including in the final measures of Contrapunctus IV, where it seems to be absolutely purposeful but perhaps never as clearly as in this final fugue. 
We've gone as far as we're going to with the Art of Fugue in this episode, but for those who would like to go farther, I have two sources to suggest. The first is Joseph Kerman's book, The Art of Fugue, a classic of its type and full of valuable information. In regard to online sources, there are a surprising number of them that have useful things to say, but I'm specifically going to suggest the analyses of Jose Rodriguez Elvira, found on the Teoria.com website. Elvira covers everything that I have in this episode and more, and he does so not only with musical examples, but with notated excerpts as well. These, I think, are particularly useful for showing the relationships between, for example, the different versions of the subject. He even uses animations to demonstrate such things as Bach's mirroring technique. It's a very rich resource for anyone interested in the art of fugue. As is typical for these episodes, we're going to let Bach have the final comment. Here's a little of the rectus in three parts for Contrapunctus 13. It features a new, rather more active version of the subject than we've heard before, one that combines new triplet rhythms with the more familiar dotted eighth-sixteenth note patterns, while still making reference to the original subject. And with that excerpt, we will bring this episode to a close. <laughs> 